literally dwells richly within our hearts. Let them be engrafted, O Lord, as a graft is in a branch. Totally taken, O Lord, and now becoming part of the whole tree of Christ. That we would hear these words, O Lord, in our life, as Paul says to the Corinthians, would be changed. That we would truly act as new creatures in Christ. And that the life we now live, we live according to the glory of the Son of God. For we can do nothing without him. His strength is perfected in our weakness, and we live each day as if we are going to fall, for we're all prone to wander. And yet his strength is sufficient enough for us to stay. We hear the word because it is the very word that does not return void. And we will hear Gary in a minute that he, he will, O oh Lord, speak the words as of the oracles of God to our own hearts, that our minds might be convinced and convicted of the words of God, and that our lives may be transformed forevermore. Let this happen. Let these words sink into our minds, as Christ said to his own disciples. To the glory of his name, the only Son, the only Son of God, who now reigns in heaven, O Lord, at the right hand of the Father for eternity. And we pray this in the Son's name. Amen. First Thessalonians chapter 1, I mean chapter 2. First Thessalonians chapter 2. We read last week when Paul said that his gospel or our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. If I was to retitle the sermon, I would like to title it Imitating Paul, Imitating the Messenger. Interesting that he's saying that the gospel transforms people who receive it with power in the Holy Spirit that brings much assurance that it results in moral transformation. Can those of us who are saved here in this room say, I've been changed. You're different than you used to be, right? I bet if we knew each other and met each other on the streets in years gone by, we probably wouldn't have got along. We might not have had any liking for one another. But now that we've been brought under the umbrella of the gospel sound and we've heard the message, that message has a dynamic influence in our lives that creates something that we weren't before. And that's what the Bible calls a new creation. So you became imitators of us. Us being Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Paul's writing this letter in collaboration with the other two. Paul, of course, is given the title normally as being the author of it, because that was his primary calling, you could say. But he yokes himself with two other individuals, so when he uses the word we, he's including them in that. And it's not as though Paul is on a pedestal, but he's bringing on Silas and Timothy as examples as well of what the gospel did to people. The gospel transformed people to become like, number one, the Lord, and of the Lord, but it's nice to have on ground level examples. Jesus is just with us. We can read about him in the Bible, but
You realize that you've been entrusted with the gospel? You're not just a receiver of the word, but you're a giver of the word. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. How are you going to be able to speak? We've got to get more of the word in us so that it wants to come out of us. Like Jesus says, he that believeth in me, out of his innermost parts shall flow rivers of living water. We should be, the scripture says, the mouth of a righteous man is a well of life. We should be, as Paul says to Timothy, be instant in season, out of season, be ready to reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. We should have that readiness to want to, when the trigger is pulled, the word out. Fill yourself with the Spirit of God by trusting Him, reading His Word, getting in the presence of God in prayer so that you can emanate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's read on. We were proved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. We speak not as pleasing men, but God which tries our hearts. Who means, what means the most to you? Is it what people think of you, or what God thinks of you? That's sometimes very difficult to get to that level where, not that you don't care about what people think, but you can't make what people think become the mark that you want to reach as far as how you conduct yourself or how you even speak. We speak not as pleasing men, but God who tries our hearts. There's nothing done in secret that shall not be shown in the open. Let's be open before God. Whatever we do, let's let us do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. Let us not be men pleasers. Let us not, as he goes on to say, we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext of greed. God is witness. This is absolutely a description of a non-cultish messenger. He is not trying to uh, rob them. He's not trying to deceive them. He's not trying to gain a following after him. He is demonstrating before them genuine sincerity. But I want you to keep in the back of your mind that Paul and Silas and Timothy are saying that in receiving the gospel, you became imitators of us. That stops me a little bit. I can understand that being imitators of God or of the Lord, but imitators of us. It's because the messengers had the transforming power of the gospel change them. Paul is saying in essence, this is what the gospel has done to us that is now being done to you and you then become like us as we are all together like the Lord. That should be a goal that all God's people want to have, and that's to be like Jesus Christ. Wow. To be like the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, for whom he did for no, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That's what we want to be, a first. He's the firstborn of many brethren. And we're conformed into his image and not our own. And Paul is not trying to say, I want you to be just like me, but I want you to be like me, like I am like the Lord. So it's great to have the, the actual visible personage of Christ 
exhibited in the life of a human being. Verse 6, nor did we seek glory from people. They were looking, not looking for a name. They were not looking for accolades. They didn't want to have applause, whether from you or from others. So we could have made, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, these three are all recognized as apostles. So the idea that the apostles were only 12, this here dismisses that idea. Now, granted, there are the 12, but the apostleship is wider than that. And Silas and Timothy are including in the term apostles. Apostle simply means a sent one. We were the ones that were sent to you by God who have authority, but we didn't use our authority in some sort of a lofty way to exercise some dominion over you. You know, what the gospel should do to us, it should humble us. He that exalts himself would be humble, but he that humbles himself will be exalted. The gospel makes us put on all the same level. We've got to be humble before we can be exalted and be like our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. I know there's a textual variant here, and some of your other translations would not translate it exactly the same way and say that we were like children among you. I prefer the ESV and readings that, that render it this way because I think in the context, Paul is describing now the way in which he cared for them as a nursing mother would take care of their children. What compassion came from the heart of Paul, Silas, and Timothy toward them? They risked their lives. They came to them with boldness after being beaten and tortured, they have a concern and desire for the souls of the Thessalonians. Verse 8, so being effectually desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become dear to us. This is true altruism. Affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but also our own selves because you had become very, very dear to us. This is the kind of affection that we should have for one another. And all of these various virtues are something that should be in each and every one of us. This is not apostolic exclusive conduct. This is the behavior that every gospel-converted person should be demonstrating, including you and I. And though we may have a lot to work on, nevertheless, God is working in us to generate these kinds of virtues and behaviors. Verse 9, you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul happened to be a tent maker, as you know, so his visitations, he did not need to have them support him. It would have been helpful. It would have relieved him of a, of a lot of time that he wouldn't have to have spent on tent making, but for the sake that the gospel wouldn't be misconstrued or that they wouldn't be looked at as shysters, he chose to be a tent maker. That shows real humility. That shows real compassion on the audience and sensitivity to where this could go if they took him wrongly. And there were definitely those that were in the circuit who were doing this very thing. And we know of them even in our day. Shameful. 
verse 10. You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous, righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. You know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Wouldn't you think that since we're called into his kingdom and glory, that we would demonstrate these kinds of characteristics? That's what the goal is in the message of the gospel. We often think of the gospel as simply a, a, a peace that we gain with God, a righteousness that we obtain by faith in him, and a knowledge that our sins are gone and that we have heaven for sure on our agenda. That's what's ahead. Hallelujah, that's all perfectly true. We've been reconciled to God. We were alienated from him. Our sins alienated us from God, and God's holiness alienated him from us. That's quite a cleavage between God being holy and we being sinful, and yet that gap has been bridged by the mediatorial work of Christ who brings two together and they become one. One in the Lord, one in the Spirit, one with one another. So, this is what the gospel creates. Again, I want to hark back to verse 6 of chapter 1 because I think Paul is elaborating on how they, the gospel recipients, have had their lives changed to become imitators of Paul and company. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. And next week we're going to talk about the Lord, but this week it's about the apostles and about their behavior. And we just, I just quickly summarized all of the characteristics that are demonstrated here. Now, I want to contrast the gospel that the apostle brought and, and Timothy and, and Silas to some of the gospel ways of our day. There was a popular track back in the 60s and 70s especially was called The Four Spiritual Laws. I want to get them up on the screen, Michael, if you could, and just review them real quickly with you. The first gospel law is that God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. Which, up, down? Hello. God loves you and offers a wonderful life. Can you imagine Paul going to Thessalonica and saying, hey, I got some good news for you. You can have a wonderful life. God's got a great plan for you. This is awesome. That's not what he said. Just think of what the gospel created. It created it says you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. This idea, God offers a wonderful plan for your life, is misleading. I mean, if this was true, who wouldn't want to say, sure, bring it on, I want the best. But when you really understand the gospel, that's why John MacArthur had to write a book called uh, The Gospel According to Jesus. I think it came out in 84 because it was too much of this side of the gospel or, or the message, I should say, that pretended to offer people a wonderful life. And I'm not saying that being a Christian is a bad life. It's an awesome life. But it's not portrayed properly with language like that. And I can't spend a lot of time on this. The second one, 
We are sinful, amen, that's so true, and separated from God, wonderful. Therefore, we cannot know and experience God's love and plan for our life. That's true that we cannot have any communion with God in a sinful and separated state. You must be born again. You need that new life from the Lord to understand Him, to relate to Him, to have communion with Him. Go to number three, Michael. Jesus Christ is, this is the third law, is God's only provision for our sin. Amen. Through Him alone, amen, we can know God personally and experience God's, again, this love and plan. That word plan gives an impression again from the first law that this is a wonderful plan for your life. The Joel Osteens of our day are using this kind of language and it's popularized and it's well accepted with the majority of people, but it's really a poor and faulty representation of the true gospel. Now this is the most important one and serious one. The fourth law. We must individually... Receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Then we can know and experience God's love and plan for our lives. Here's the big question. What does it mean to receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord? Does it mean that I have to do something? That I have to go forward to an altar call, which we don't have altars. This is a table, not an altar. Um, or this area is not the altar call area. The, the call is a gospel call. An altar call is an apocrypha call. There's only one call of God, and that's the gospel that tells people that they must repent. I don't see the word repentance anywhere in any of these four laws. Paul says, we testified repentance toward God in faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the two ingredients that he summarizes the content of the gospel, repentance towards God in faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what brings man in connection with God. Now here, um, can we, do I have another line underneath this mic? Yeah, there we go. This is the, the, the words that follow the fourth law. And there are words in between the, the laws. This is the fourth one, and here are the words following. The fourth spiritual law comes to a place of decision. It is one thing to hear this, but it is another to personally accept this gift of salvation. All right, so now the onus of, believe, of salvation is put into the hands of the individual, and the individual is in a place of decision. And it's undoubt, undoubted that we, not doubted, that we have to make a decision, that a decision has to be made, a choice has to be made. The question is, does that choice come from us? Are we the creators of the cause for deciding? It is one thing to hear this, but it is another to personally accept this gift of salvation. And John 1.12 says what? But to as many as received him, to them he gave the authority to become the children of God. Unfortunately, this period should not be put there. If you isolated that verse from the context... Yes, you could say, it's your responsibility to receive Jesus into your heart. But the next verse says about those who receive Christ, we don't have it here, but I'll quote it to you. Those who receive him are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but, but what? But born of God. You see, the new birth is something created by God. The decision to trust Christ, to put faith in him, 
comes from him. In Acts 11:18, when Cornelius and his household believe, it's summarized like this. God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. God granted repentance unto life. Romans 9:16 said, It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that shows mercy. It's God that gets the glory. Your decision to believe on Jesus, if you believed, if you trusted him, yeah, you received him. It says that in Colossians. Having received Jesus Christ, Colossians chapter 2, right around verse 4, we have received him, but where did the receiving power come from? Did it come from me? Did I, by my decision, regenerate myself? Or did God, by the Holy Spirit, regenerate me? Now, this, it's so important that we get the gospel straight because a strange gospel will produce strange children. A gospel without repentance is not going to produce fruit in the soul of the hearer. Yes, we do have to acknowledge and recognize that when the gospel comes, it has to be fueled with the truth that man is a sinner, lost and guilty and condemned and is on a broad road leading to destruction. And their only hope is Calvary, the precious blood of Jesus shed on Calvary, shed for rebels, shed for sinners, shed for me. Now, it, how many of you have seen the movie that recently came out, the Jesus Movement movie, the Jesus Revolution? I know a bunch of you have here. Um, well, I just want to bring something out about it. And I, I mentioned it in the radio program that I was on uh, last week. That um, it, it, Lonnie, Lonnie Frisbee, who's a key character, he's the evangelist, uh, the, the main force behind the Jesus Movement there in the Costa Mesa, Southern California area. And he's talking to a group of people, an audience, younger people, of course, the hippie crowd primarily. And he says, Jesus Christ was a sacrifice for all of us here. Quote, so that he might redeem us by water and the spirit. That's why we are going down to the ocean this weekend. That's a problem. That's an errant, unbiblical statement. We are going down to the water, to the ocean, this weekend. For what reason? To accept Christ, to receive Christ, to be born again, to be redeemed. We're not redeemed by water in blood. We're redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus, right? Precious, precious blood of Jesus shed on Calvary. Nothing but the blood. We preach the blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? If baptism was essential to salvation, how could Paul say in 1 Corinthians 1.17, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with the, not with the wisdom of men, but with the cross of Christ. By the, yeah. Christ sent me not to, to uh, baptize, but to preach the gospel. It's the gospel that carries the power unto salvation to everyone that believes, not the water. Water can't wash away sin. Baptism doesn't do anything to save you. You've got to be saved to be baptized, not baptized to be saved. And a, and a, and a misconception comes out of that movie, and it's not, it's not uncommon that even in our day, have you ever asked anybody, and this was a weird one, yesterday I asked somebody who was introduced to me as a brother in Christ, I just simply said, so when did you become a Christian? 
And the person said, oh, I've always been a Christian. Always been a Christian. Well, I didn't want to hammer the thought, but I wanted to say, well, then you didn't need to be born again. Like Jesus said, you must be born anew. You must be born from above. Your first birth is insufficient. No one's born a Christian. Yes, you might be brought up in a Christian home. Praise God for that. But that doesn't qualify you to be called a Christian. You're Christian by faith in God and repentance toward our Lord Jesus Christ. I was kind of saddened by, by that response. Maybe he didn't exactly, maybe he was never really asked that question, when did you become a Christian? That's an important one. But I have heard people say, likewise, when asked that question, oh, I was baptized on such and such a day or that last summer or when I was 14 years old, I was baptized. What does water baptism have to do with your conversion? Zero, zero. Be sure you don't depend on your water baptism. There's nothing magical that happens by going under the water. There's no sanctifying power that the baptizer has, me or anyone else, that's going to create a new birth in you. So what does Jesus mean in John 3, 5? That's an important question. Because it is there and it's been misconstrued throughout the centuries. When Jesus says, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. What is the water? It sounds like there's two ingredients for a person to have the new birth and to be able to enter into the kingdom. One being the Spirit, which we understand that well, I think. No man comes to me except the Father which has sent me draws him. That's the drawing power of the Holy Spirit. But the water thing, what is that? Is Jesus advocating the need for water baptism to be somehow combined with Spirit that's going to generate the new birth and give persons ability to enter into the kingdom of God? Listen to what Jesus said in John 15, 3. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Paul says in Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. You see, the spirit and the word combine together. Just like the silver trumpet in Numbers chapter 10 when it's blown, the two silver trumpets that creates hearing in the ears when the Holy Spirit takes the word of God. And they're united together and delivered to the soul and riveted into the heart of man. Then conversion takes place. And true conversion is demonstrated by moral changes in your life. And if that has never happened to you, you have never been converted. You can't say, Lord, Lord, with your lips, Jesus said. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? If Jesus is your Lord... You know why you can say Jesus is your Lord? I think I may have told you a long time uh, that a long time ago when I was in college and I was into that Jesus revolution, that Jesus movement in the early 70s and, and God was certainly using Jesus in the whole movement to start to draw me. And I got into it and I had all these things. I had the, the Jesus Christ superstar picture on my back. I had a wooden cross hanging you know, with rawhide lace coming over my neck. And I had the the one-way Jesus sign on my Volkswagen Beetle on the left-hand side. I can remember that. Things go better with Jesus bumper sticker on the back. Hey, I must be a Christian. I must be saved. I even had my girlfriend, who's now my wife, Michelle, I had her put patches on my dungaree coat. And uh, one of them said, 
Jesus revolution. Yeah, I was right in the middle of it, and I was all for Jesus, no doubt about it. But when I went down and bought the patches, I bought a patch that I could not put on me. On, I couldn't wear it. And one day when I was going to a class uh, from the dormitory, I said, oh, I forgot a pen. So I went back to the dormitory. I pulled out the drawer, and there I saw the patch that I could not put on my dungaree coat. And it said this, Jesus is my Lord. I couldn't, I couldn't honestly say that. Why? 1 Corinthians 12, 2 says, No man can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life, you can call Jesus Christ Lord. You cannot honestly, truthfully call Jesus Lord. And that's why Jesus stops the crowd and says, Don't call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things which I say. Because you're not going to be able to do the things that he says unless you have Jesus as Lord by the Holy Spirit that gives to you that inward power to decide, to trust, to believe, to yield to him, to believe from your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The power of the gospel to transform lives. Paul gives us here a identification of himself and his fellow apostles as individuals who were converted themselves. Paul describes himself as a, in his unsaved days, days as an overbearing and an insolent, uh, insolent man. He was not the kind of guy you wanted to hang around with. He was rough, had some rough edges, but he was tough. And he says, that's what I was like. But when the gospel came into my life, this is my new life, Paul saying. In Silas, in Timothy, in you too, since you've heard the gospel and believed it, the power of it has done for you what it has done to us. It's changed us. And now you're imitators of us and praise God of the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are amazed at the transforming power of your gospel. Thank you, Lord, that your gospel continues to work in us the truths that we maybe learn today and what we read tomorrow in thoughts that we have as we meditate on Holy Scriptures. We pray, Lord, that your workings would go on in our lives continuously and that we would realize the wonderful privilege that we have to be able to enter into the kingdom and glory and that, Lord, that we can enter as ones that have been truly transformed. And, Lord, for anyone in this room that has never surrendered their life to Christ, that has never been by the Holy Spirit able to receive Jesus, we pray and beckon with you, O God, that it would please you to draw someone even now to the cross of Calvary, to behold the Lamb of God and to look and live. Lord, we pray you'd open up their hearts and minds that they would behold Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of their souls. Hear our cry, Lord, as we give you thanks in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen.